Okay. Though the text was very long, it's just continually repeating various judgments. So let's just briefly go over it. And my hope is, is that we'll be able to finish this in one hour. Because honestly, the most important prophecies come out in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14. And so we need to finish that at the end, by the end of this conference. And when's the next time we might have a conference in Zoe Ministry? Who knows? We're not sure. And so I'll have Central America Conference in March. And then once I get back, we're going straight to Africa pretty much. And after Africa, I'll take a short sabbatical for about three months. And then in September, conference in Israel. And so, maybe after Israel, maybe we can have a conference for the Koreans. And we're planning on having a conference in Malaysia on the first week of Dece December. They've invited us to come to KL. And so those are the conferences that I'll be leading, but there will also be conferences in NB. Uh, and so I'm thinking about maybe going through Malaysia and Singapore for um, for um, intercession and NB, and then also maybe doing NB in South America as well, maybe sending some of the associate pastors. So, prayer topics for you is is that is that the professors of the Pillar of Truth team have been prepared, and uh, Pastor Lee took slipped up a little bit um, with his with his doctorate, and so uh, it's not that he was he failed to receive, but he had an extension, and so please pray for him. Of course, like he has personal weaknesses that he has to work through, but more than that. The, the topic of his dissertation itself is going directly against the chip of the great prostitute. And so there is a lot of um, resistance spiritually going on. And then also, Judy is preparing a very important dissertation in, for, in Notre Dame. She studied receiving scholarship from the Pope. So, you know, she, she wants, she's writing a dissertation to kill the Pope. But the Pope is funding the research for her to prepare that dissertation. So please pray for her. Please pray for her that, that as she continually speaks about uh, the soteriology of the early church through the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and so once these five professors have received their PhDs, uh, I believe that that will complete the preparations to fight for the truth. And so please pray for them to write a book and that this book would bring sensation through uh, the theological rules, schools, that it would be a bestseller. And so that uh, if we could sell maybe um, uh, a million copies, then, then, the, the, then maybe the Vatican, it will bring attention to the Vatican. And so, you know, if, if Korea buys 50,000 copies, Central America buys 50,000 copies, and, and Africa buys 50,000 copies, that's already 150,000 copies. And so even now already we've heard many people call us um, 
call us uh, heretics, but the persecution that we'll receive once this battle for the truth begins will be even will be even greater than what we've experienced so far. But God has given us this truth, and because He has given us this truth, we cannot uh, stand still. And don't worry, no matter what books we write, my name will not be written in there because I have to survive and be on the DL, so I'll be on the down low. But, but let my professors stand in the front, right? Because I have to survive until the very end. And so, so let's feed them like sheep to the slaughter. But anyways, and so... So, he's, so throughout this, Isaiah has been continually speaking of judgment. And so apart from Amos... Uh, the book of the prophets has continued to go through this trend of proclaiming judgment, proclaiming restoration, judgment, restoration, judgment, restoration. But ultimately, these prophetic books transcend space and time. And so when we look at the prophecies, we have to see what time that they're talking about. And But thanks be to God that God has continually... Uh, brought about the truth to reveal what the time frame is. This is really important when we see uh, see prophecy. Because honestly, when I was on the internet, I could see thousands of pastors who are ministering for who are ministering uh, about preaching about the end times. Now I didn't see the content of their preaching, but. The important thing that I'm trying to say right now is that interpretation itself is not what Im what's important. What's important is how does this time schedule align to our times? Who is the Antichrist? These ten horns, they represent ten nations. What are these ten countries? How is the Antichrist going to manifest himself and going beyond them? Beyond that, how is the great prostitute going to reveal herself? How is the Antichrist going to reveal himself? It is time for these things to be revealed. And so this is a very delicate thing because if, if I make a mistake, that's going to cause great confusion. And so clear 100% revelation from God needs to fall to us like in the early church. And so this is a really delicate matter. And so I am not a foolish pastor. I'm not going to just just say whatever I want to bring about confusion. Because honestly, I could just stay still. But in these end times, the time is urgent. We need to see how these events are unfolding. We need to be able to define it. Because what does it say in the Bible? What does Jesus Christ our Lord says? He says that he will not come like a thief in the night. That, that the remnant will know will know because they understand how God reigns over creation how he reigns over the nations and what the remnant are to pray for what is entrusted to the remnant to pray for it is time for this revelation to be manifest to be revealed so as I said I'm not going to say pray that uh, let Israel survive because Israel will not be destroyed until the end times there's no need to pray foolishly like this and so in this way we need to understand the schedule of what we are to pray for where uh, we need to respect God's decisions and so as Amos prophesied that God does not move without first revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And so this sowed, this inner chamber, this bed chamber of God, where he determines the history of man and, and, and the world, it is now time for us to make that known. This is what the remnant church is to do. And so look, I'm not sure. 
I'm not entirely sure who is the two candles. God, I don't believe he has determined yet. The, the, the leaders of these two candles, uh, that is not revealed. But if I am to be that leader, then, then I need to be able to make those revelations revealed. Honestly, personally, I, I wish it's not me. I hope it's not me. I just want to be a leader of Zoe ministry and live quietly on this earth. Because the leader of the two candles, the two candle leaders, this, this is going to cause a lot of work. Because, I mean, for the past 20 years, I've already uh, worked so hard. I, I'd like, I'd like to, to, to rest now, you know. But look, it's not up to me. It's not whether I want it or not. It's God's decision. But I want to prepare. I want to prepare. That's the reason why I'm taking this sabbatical. To see if God has chosen me. And so I don't need these three months to study the eschatology. Rather, I need these three months to confirm God's calling for my ministry. And so for the past several years, I've been so busy going all over the world and so busy pastoring pastors. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't pray, but I want to uh, be isolated and spend time one-on-one -on -one with God and, and, and really confirm this calling. And so from this perspective, I'm, I'm saying this to you so that you can pray for me. Right now, 30, 40 people are fasting at the same time. And this fast has been so beneficial to me with my relationship to God. And so I'm really conflicted. Should I make all the associate pastors of our church fast? Pastor Yoon and Pastor Kim uh, fasted 40 days. Really, Pastor Yoon was such a skinny man. I, I did not expect him to do 40 days. And yet he, he fasted. And as I was doing those, as I was thinking of that, it reminded me of Pastor Myungo Kim. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, there's no meaning significance behind my words. I'm just saying that I thought about Pastor Myungo Kim. Okay. At his height, he, 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 he w went down to the 50s in his kilograms. And as I was thinking of this, it reminded me of Pastor Myungo Kim. And so I thought to myself, maybe I should ask him to fast one more time. But just because I asked doesn't mean he's going to do it, right? And maybe if he does it, Pastor Lee will also do with him because they are friends. But anyways, so this is the situation that God is unfolding before us. And so, of course, all the Zoe Ministry Network all over the world is praying for me. But especially you as Koreans, please pray for me. Because honestly, this is really delicate. It could be blown away with the wind. And so this is what I truly yearn for. As Paul saw heavens from, from the third heavens, because of the limitations of my flesh, there's so much limitations to the revelations that, 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 that I can receive. And so like Paul, I would want, I want to go up to, to the heavens and see now, I mean, of course, if God hasn't called me, that would also another thing that I, I would like to be confirmed. And because there are these really important uh, time before us, and yet, even in the midst of all this busy uh, things going on, we're going to Kenya again for the first time. And so, you know, there's so much to do. And, and so as you pray for me, that I would be able to move according to the schedule of God. 
and not just the pastors of Zoe Ministry, but also all the saints of these various churches. Amen? So you are all going to pray for me, yes? You must pray for me. It's through your prayers, because if I falter, I could all be blown away. Up until this point, God has led us very well uh, without any hiccups. So really, for the past 20 years, uh, right now, the, uh, compared to the past 20 years, the time that is before us is much more important. And so, Zoe Ministry, you know, you are our family, right? And so, please pray for us. Even if you are, don't pray for your husband, you need to pray for me. Now, I'm not saying choose one or the other. I'm saying you should do both. But if you can only do one, then you should pray for me. <laughs> but really, I, I, I'm not trying to just be modest. But truly, I, I, I am nothing. Without your prayers, without the Holy Spirit leading me, I'm nothing. And so... So, I, I'm really just inspired at what God does through me. And honestly, none of this can be my righteousness. None of this is my is my boasting because God has done everything. The fact that Zoe Ministry has been bound as one family, again, this is something that I stand in awe of God. I'm so grateful. Amen? And so once again, today, all of the Zoe Ministry who is with us online, though you may not be here, once again, I thank you. I thank you. And Central America, I will see you in March. And Africa, I will see you in May. Amen? Hallelujah. All of a sudden, I don't want to preach. But I have to. I have to preach. We have to finish this material. And so let's go on. And so first, let's see God's wrath against the sin of Israel from chapter 9, verse 8 to chapter 10, verse 4. And so as we listen to the prophets, uh, as we saw in Habakkuk and other prophecies, especially when it comes to prophecies, these prophets, the best way is to match up with the way they prophesied. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the prophecy is a gift. How about in Romans 12? Romans 12 says, according to the measure of your faith. And so this measure of faith uh, prophecy is a little bit different from the prophecy that's described as a spiritual gift in, in 1 Corinthians 12. And so we need to have the faith to be able to proclaim prophecies. Prophets, when they proclaim these prophecies, they proclaim it in faith. And so in other words, when Isaiah proclaims, God determines uh, the history according to how Isaiah prophesies. Now, of course, all the prophecies see visions, and visions is a gift of prophecy, right? From the perspective of the New Testament, vision is a gift of prophecy, is a gift. And so these prophets, when they see vision, that state of seeing the vision itself, doesn't necessarily mean that prophecy has manifested. God is just showing them a vision and as they see that vision, when that prophet receives it in faith and proclaims it, that's when the prophecy is proclaimed. And so, once again, visions is a part of the gift of prophecy, but if you want to interpret that vision, you need what? You need the gift of wisdom. And so, the vision of prophecy and the gift of, 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 of wisdom to interpret that prophecy needs to move together. 
And so someone like me, I cannot see visions. That I have never seen visions except for that first time I, I, I began my 40-day fast. Right, many people were saying that God has called you to be a pastor at that time. And I said, I, I had the attitude that if God has called me, he would call me directly. And so I had that attitude. And when I went into the, my 40-day fast, the very first night I saw a vision of, of, of oil flowing into me from two sides. So apart from that vision, I have never seen a vision. Honestly, I don't even dream that often. For the most part, if I laid my head down, I fall asleep. So there's no reason for me to dream. And even if I do dream, I don't remember. But, but no matter what vision is brought to me, I have the gift of wisdom to interpret that vision. When someone describes a vision to me, almost immediately that vision gets interpreted. That, oh, you need to see a couple more things. There are a couple things are absent from your vision. And so I have this wisdom to interpret it. And so, but the prophets, that's not how they do it. They see a vision. And when they see that vision, that's not when the prophecy is activated. When they see that vision first, they need to receive it in faith and proclaim it. That's when they proclaim it that that prophecy is activated. And so that's why in Romans 12 it says that the gift of prophecy according to the measure of your faith. And that's why Romans 12 is really important when it comes to prophecy. So the gift of prophecy versus prophecy is different. Gift of prophecy, you just have to speak or you just have to say it when the anointing comes. That's all, right? That's this gift of prophecy. But when it comes to prophecy itself, it's according to the measure of your faith. Uh, you need to have the vessel to receive that in faith. And so as you listen to the exposition of Isaiah, this is what you need to yearn for, to receive this anointing. Receive the anointing of Isaiah to be able to proclaim as Isaiah did. And that when you proclaim, that God will honor your proclamation and will respect and receive your proclamation. And so you become a spokesperson of God. And just as when a spokesman speaks for the nation, that nation moves in the same way. When you speak for God, the nation moves. Amen? The kingdom of heaven moves. As God says in Amos, that God does not move without first revealing his secrets to his servant, the prophets. And so when the prophet receives the vision, he sees it, he receives it in faith, and he proclaims it. When he proclaims it, that's when the prophecy moves. As, as Jesus said to Peter, right, uh, that you will deny me before the rooster crows twice. And so, so did Jesus knew that the rooster would be there? No. Rather, when he proclaimed, God respected his, his, his proclamation. Right? As I did this once in Honduras, I said, today, there's a sister named Michelle. But she was not someone who was supposed to come to this conference, but come forward because God has something to say to you. And truly, in that conference, and really in that conference there was a sister named Michelle okay, I thought it was interesting because Michelle is not a Spanish name but she came not because she was supposed to attend the conference but she came because she came to help her mother and God didn't reveal that this sister would come but rather, rather as I was praying 
I prayed, Lord, send Michelle to this conference because I proclaim God brought her there. Understand what I'm trying to say? It's difficult, isn't it? But this is how powerful the proclamation of a prophet is. That God will respect the word of the prophet, that he will not let it fall to the floor. This is the level of trust, the intimacy that they have with God. That when they are faithful, when they have this faithful relationship, that the words will not fall, that, that leaves their lips will not fall to the floor. So these days, when I say, let's do a conference, then honestly, the very next week or even that very day, the, the money is already filled up. Many times before, I had to worry about the money. I had to worry about whether it's coming in or not. But these days when I say conference is going to happen, then immediately the money comes in. Immediately within that week. How amazing is that? Right? All the conferences. And so none of the words that proclaim from my lips fall to the floor. This is the method of the prophet. And so you don't just sit here and let these words pass through your ears. No, let the anointing of the prophet flow into you. Because in these end times, for, to prepare for his return, all the apostles have been established. But yet, uh, God has yet to reveal his prophet. I do not know why. Look at the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? One is Elijah, the other is Moses. And Moses, in a, word, in a sense, already exists. Because Moses is the apostle, right? But Elijah has yet to be revealed. And now it's time for Elijah to manifest. And so one of my callings is to continually impart this anointing so that the prophet would be, would be revealed. And so Pastor Deacon Kim... If you receive this prophetic anointing tomorrow, you might quit your job and, and put on the camel hair as clothes and be where and, and be the prophet of God. And so, you know, the apostle gets to be dressed up, but the prophet has to live a very torturous life because, you know, you never know. You never know. You might be called as the prophet, Deacon Kim. Okay, so let's go. Let it go. Let it receive. Receive the anointing of the prophet. Let the proclamation of the word be uh, respected by God as it's proclaimed. This is how prophet, the prophetic method. And so anyways, so verse 8 and to chapter uh, verse 12, this is the first judgment and it's being continued repeated. And so as you see here, that the wrath of God that the wrath of God is there, but his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. And so this energy is still continually going out. We see it in verse 12, also verse 17, also verse 21. We continually see the anger of God, the wrath of God being poured out. This is the jealousy of God. Once again, what is jealousy? It's not in terms of envy, but it's in terms of love. Because love is there, that, 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 that unique love, that love to be only one, that God has given everything to Israel, but Israel has turned away from God. And so, of course, God understands and He is long-suffering. But as it goes forth, as it goes forth, it explodes in wrath. And so look, for the past 3,000 years, Israel has been continually suffering. Why? Because to Israel, 
God has poured out so much more love than, than the suffering that they've gone through. He has given them glory. And so Israel cannot cannot betray the love of God. It's the same thing with the church. Because of the price that the Son of God paid and Him becoming the head, He purchased the church with His blood. And so when that church loses that holiness, God is filled with wrath. And But remember that the focus is not on wrath, but the focus is on how much He loved the church, how much glory He poured out upon that church. And when that church betrays that price, then of course God would be filled with wrath. And so do not be focused on God being angered, but rather focus on that this is God's element, uh, the, the, this is God's... Uh, this is God's option that He has to take to protect your glory. That is God's love. It is the ultimate expression of God's love. That He's not just going to leave you alone to, to wallow in your sin as the glorious Son. At the very least, that He is going to uh, rise you, raise you up to the highest of glory. We may think that it's a blessing to be on this earth as long as possible, but that's not the case. Rather, it's rising up to the highest of glory that God has prepared for us. And so, so because Israel turned their back on the glory of God, of course God pours out His wrath to Israel. And so, there's no reason for us to be corrupted to this point, right? And honestly, this is a simple thing. All we have to do is repent. Because the power of the blood is sprinkled upon us, it's so simple. All we have to do is repent. Even if we were to sin 10,000 times, if we repent 10,000 times, God will still consider you righteous. The righteous, even though they fall eight times or seven times, they get back eight. And so all you have to do is receive that righteousness. Just receive that righteousness. When you are born again and you have received the power of His blood, then, then it's so obvious for us to repent because we have received that righteousness. Even if you sin the same sin, in your belief in your righteousness, as it says in 1 John, that when you, when you confess our sins, He is faithful. Homo logeo. When you say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner, when you confess, the power of the blood moves, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And so legally speaking, you are righteous. And so immediately you are acknowledged to be without sin, and so you have the right to meet with God. And so even though you may sin, in your being you are righteous, right? Even when you sin, right? You are a son of God who has sinned. That is different from being a wicked man. And so when you believe that you are righteous in your being, you believe in your righteousness, at all times you can draw near to God and repent. And so though your old self sins, it is your new self who repents. So let that new self grow in you. Let that new self multiply in you. And so let that new self repent of the old self's sins. It's really simple. It's really simple to live in this righteousness. And so I don't understand why you complicate things. It's because you fail to repent. You are not damned because you sin. You are damned because you do not repent. God has provided the way. He has provided the way. 
And so it is lack of faith that brings about damnation. And so right now we're talking about the sin of Israel, but this is the frustration. This is the frustration that they don't need to complicate it in this way. Verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Because the word is life, he says he sent it. So he sent the word of judgment. Verse 9, and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and arrogance of heart. And so Israel, the reason why they have to be judged is because they were filled with pride and arrogance. And it's because of this pride and arrogance uh, that they are judged. Pride, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, it is the sign of wickedness. Right? A wicked man is symbolized by what? By arrogance. And then also it talks about uh, arrogance of heart, the hardness of heart. Whenever the Bible talks about wickedness, ultimately what does that mean? The person who is wicked is the one who lives for himself. And so in Habakkuk, in chapter 1, what does it say? That How does he define the wickedness? Wicked one is the one who lives by what he has. It's the one who lives for himself, the one who lives by his strength, the, lives, the one who lives by his own ability. And so even though you attend church, if you live by your ability, you are wicked. And so in our terms, what it doesn't mean, it means you are living by the old self. If you are living in the old self, the old self has fellowship with sin. And because he has fellowship with sin, he is, he is in death. And so when the Bible talks about wickedness, primarily what should you think of is the one who lives by himself. The one who lives in his own ability. And so if you are connected to the world, then ultimately you have to be self-centered. This is the danger of your cell phones, of your mobile phones, because it is a really key component that allows you to build your own world. It's a key component that allows you to build up your own kingdom. And so arrogance and wickedness, they satisfy one another. They fulfill one another. And so arrogance is wickedness. Wickedness is living for themselves. Because they live for themselves, they are arrogant. Right? You understand what I mean? It's this self-fulfilling cycle. So those who live for themselves, the, the, the standard of judgment is based on their own things. And so they judge everything based on their information. And so, of course... Because they are the standard. They are filled with arrogance. It's all based on what they think is right. It's all based on the information that they have. It's all based on their judgment. And so if they do not fulfill their standards, then they say that you are wrong. You are wrong. And so God will say to you, you are wrong. And so if you're constantly self-centered, this is this terrifying thing is that you're constantly judging, constantly condemning everything around you. So as it says in Matthew 6, what does it say? It says, do not judge. For if you are judged by the standard you, are, you judge with, you will be judged. So judging is a very deep sin because every time you sin, you are being judged by that. Or every time you judge, you are being judged by that same standard. So when you say that bastard, you are, that, that you are judging yourself. So if you continually judge, you're constantly receiving that wickedness inside of you. So I've done many of this healing, right? I've used this, ex uh, this, this, this example many times. That when you have continually seen your father drinking and cheating on your mother, then you, you, 
you swear to yourself that you will not be like your father, but because because the strength of that sin is still over you, you almost do the same. You always do the same thing, that you drink, you beat your wife, and you cheat on her. Now, if you repent, then you will be set free from those shackles. But if you're just constantly judging your father, you will do the same thing that your father does. If he is a drunkard, you will be a drunkard. If he cheats on your, his wife, you will cheat on your wife. So you don't need spiritual discernment. All you have to do is see um, uh, the flow that has been going through their, to, through their parents. That's why man must be born again. Because man cannot cut themselves off from this generational curse. They cannot cut themselves off from their self-centered judgment. And so, through these self-cell phones, what is, what is it doing to the children? It's making their children create their own kingdoms. And because they, they build up their own kingdom, God's kingdom cannot come upon them. And so they keep judging based on what they think is right. They keep discerning based on their own standard. This is, what, this is the terrifying spiritual truth of Babylon because you're constantly building up the standard of wickedness in your life. And so it's when you do not judge anyone that you are spiritually very um, high. This is described in the Beatitudes of Matthew is what is the meek one. The meek one, the one who gives, who, who passes judgment to God or, or gives judgment to God and, and, and receives that judgment from God. And as God praised Moses that there has never been a, a man as meek as Moses, it's when you are meek that you can be a leader. And so to be a leader... It's about self-control. And where does self-control come from? It's not from your own judgment, but by being meek, by giving all judgment to God, letting God be the standard of judgment. This is really important to leaders. And so if leaders do not do this, then you're constantly pressing, pressing your followers. Who are pastors? As I say all the time, pastors, you are leading the sheep from the front. You leave footprints for the sheep to follow you. That's what it means to be a pastor. We as pastors need to follow God. As you follow God, the sheep will follow you. What does it mean to follow God? It means to let God reign over you. But pastors, when you are fail to be meek, you, you keep raising up your strength and as you keep raising up your strength instead of leading the past leading the sheep from the front you try to herd them from the back you herd them and you keep constantly trying to shape them based on your standards and so this is not a pastor but a shepherd Right, a shepherd dog. A shepherd dog is the one who barks at the sheep from the back. That's not leadership. So, and so a leader is raising up more leaders. And so if you do not stand in leadership, then you cannot build up new leaders. And if leadership is not established, 
in that process as you're training people, you're going to hurt them and you're going to receive lots of hurts because men betray each other ultimately. And, and as that happens, leadership cannot be handed down from generation to generation. And so the most important thing is to lay down your judgment, lay down your, your, your limitations of the flesh. You need to enter into the dominion of God. Let God's kingdom move over you. That's why meekness is so important. Amen. This is what you need to pray. Okay. Just open it before God and pray. As I wake up in the morning, as I say to you, this is what I do. I take the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, and pray with these. And as I pray with these things, as the leader, because I have many associate pastors under me, I'm constantly checking whether I, whether I am moving based on my position. Because if I move based on my position, I am limiting God's reign. I'm constantly moving based on my strength. That means it's creating religion. And this will cause hurts and wounds and offense to people. And so as I live my daily life, most of the time I do not move people through my strength. I pray and God moves. That God himself leads. And going beyond that, associate pastors, is it because they fail at something that they're associate pastors? Am I excellent? That's why I'm over them? Don't say amen, dear. And so let's move on. It's very dangerous to live by your own ability. And I always say, uh, do not be lazy in putting yourself to death. Amen. And so Zoe Ministry, pastors of Zoe Ministry, I bless you that you would be an excellent leader. Amen. And so let's continue move on. Uh, uh, arrogance and of heart and pride. And the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. And so God breaks down the bricks and they will build with dressed stones. And so even though suffering comes, they keep trying to solve that problem through their own ability. This is arrogance. They're confessing that they do not need God. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. And so no matter what kind of suffering may come, the, 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 the desire to try to solve it on your own, this is arrogance. This is the pinnacle of arrogance. And so up to a point, until your limitation, man will constantly try to solve their own problems. And so if that happens, if you continue to persist, then you will continually be, uh, suffer the wrath of God. And so if the God's wrath comes, then receive that wrath until the very end. For example, let's say God does not allow you to have money then you should not struggle to earn money with all your all your ability rather rather you should um, receive that wrath of god until it's dealt with because god is not going to want to try to bring the same punishment to you twice <coughs> excuse me for those of you who, who have children, you do not want to punish your child for the same mistake twice, right? It's the same thing. 
And so when you graduate beyond the problem of money through the wrath that God, through the suffering that God has given, then He's not going to bring that same problem again. So you need to receive that hardship. Many times when suffering comes, when wrath of God comes, they try to solve it. They try to bring their own solution. And so the, same, so the wrath never gets lifted up. You need to receive it until the finish line. Don't try to solve it on your own. Just right, like, like David, that David says to God, uh, give to me. If you don't give to me, I will die. And so immediately when suffering comes, we try to solve it our own, in, through our own way. And so when you do that, God is going to look at you and say, oh, he doesn't need me. So you have your own strength. And so when I look at my church, when I look at people, I don't need to say that you have uh, talent spiritually, but, but what I can say is that when I say that you are bad spiritually, what I'm trying to say is that you have great will. You have strength of will. This is not good spiritually speaking. It's not easy to live in Jesus Christ. So you know yourself whether you have strong, whether you are strong-willed or not. And so, and so when God strikes you, you should say, Oh God, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. But rather, instead of saying that, you say, Is that all you got? Is that all you got? And so you try to stand your ground, right? These are the people who are, who are not good spiritually. And so when I look at my church, uh, most of these people have already left, right? The people who are strong-willed. And so it's not about persevering against God's wrath. Right? Look at, look at soccer, right? In soccer, when, when they dive, they get, they get yellow cards. But with God, when you, when you dive, He has mercy on you. He has mercy on you and He gives you a penalty kick. And so when someone even just... just just brushes against you you say oh my leg is broken my leg is broken and so to God he loves it when you dive he's not going to give you a yellow card when you dive and so it's not about being strong-willed okay right the people in the world they like strong-willed people right they think that strong-willed people is good but that's not the good thing. It's saying that I will rely on God alone. That if God does not move, I cannot do anything. And so you keep turning to God. And then so verse 12, it says the Syrians on the east side and the Philistines on, oh wait, huh? uh, yeah, yeah, the Philistines on the west. And so through the Syrians, God brings wrath to Israel. Through the Philistine, God brings wrath to Israel. So Israel is constantly being punished. And so many people will, will, will persist as long as they can, but they will come to their limitation. And so why be beaten until you are, you are, you are like a rag, right? Let, just the immediate time you feel a brush, just give up right away. So verse 12, or verse 12 says, The Syrians on the east and Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. And so there's enemies surrounding them. Enemies are all around. And so, and yet, 
God says that He will not turn His wrath away. His hand is stretched out still. And so, even though God is hitting them, He is not satisfied. It's not because of His anger, but rather because they continue to persist in their wickedness. Even when you are living in God, there are many enemies. Look at David. He has enemies all around him. But when you have enemies in God, you do not need to worry because God will, dis will, will save you, right? But when you have enemies in your wickedness, then you will die. And so the problem is, is uh, the enemies that form when, when you are in your wickedness. That is the problem. So moving on to verse 13 to verse 17 is the next section. This is the second wrath. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Excuse me. And so look, even though God beats them, they do not turn. They do not return. This is the strength of the flesh. Look at the prodigal son. If he had the feed of livestock, he would not return to his father. It's because he could not even eat the, the, the feed of the pigs that he returns to his father. That is the strength of the flesh. That is the tenacity of the flesh. And so in this time, We, need to con we really need to experience the love of God because even many people who receive Christ, right, because I was someone who had a lot of wounds towards my father and because I was an athlete, I was very strong-willed. But really, when I was born again, I experienced the love of God in such a deep way and, and so deep that, that this love would bring me down to my knees uh, at all times. And so we need to receive that love. And that's the danger of hurts towards your fleshly father because it makes it really difficult to receive the love of God. And so hurts towards your parents is very dangerous. It's without those hurts that makes it easier to receive the love of God. With these hurts, you will constantly try to persist. You will be tenacious to stand against God. And so moving on, verse 14. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. And so the head is the leader and tails are probably the bottom of the society. And the elder and honored man, uh, palm branch and reed in one day. And so whether nobility or the humble, they are all being broken down. As it says in verse 15, the elder and honored man is the head. And the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. So the prophet should be the head of the nation. But because they're constantly telling lies, they become the tail. And so pastors should be the elders of the church, but the pastor is becoming the immature in the church. That describes the church in these days, right? Pastors receive no respect. When I first began my ministry, uh, the most popular uh, profession for, for marriage was a pastor. Now, of course, those women were crazy, you know, they were crazy for power. You know, they didn't want to be married to a pastor of a, of a newly planted church, but they wanted to be a wife of a pastor who had mega churches. But ultimately, that is the respect that pastors um, had. 
And uh, look at some regions in America. I mean, it doesn't apply to all states, but in some places during in the 80s, in the 80s, uh, a pastor could be uh, the affidavit that would guarantee a loan. When I was in Iowa, if a pastor uh, signs uh, uh, signs um, an affidavit of guarantee, then the the bank would loan to them without receiving any collateral. And, and so, you know, in, in, in my youth, if someone was a deacon, we would say, are you a deacon? To say that, hey, as a deacon, you should not be conning people. You should not be taking advantage of people. But nowadays, when you see a deacon, you expect them to, to be against you. You expect them to, to have something under... Uh, um, some kind of sleight of hand. But that's what's being described here, right? That the, that, uh, that the prophet who teaches lies is the tale. This is tragic, is it not? So, really, when I think of this, pastors, I need to fire you. And so examine yourselves, pastors. Okay, you should not just um, ordain anyone, right? This is... Uh, watering down, watering down the pool of pastors. So from now on, uh, the pastoral, <laughs> the pastoral test to confirm whether you can be ordained or not. I think I'm going to have you memorize Hebrews in English and write it down in English. <laughs> Because I'm already a pastor, I don't need to pass this test. But anyway, so verse 16. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The lead, the pastors, the, the, the prophets should be the one who are leading them in the right way, but they are the ones who are deceiving them. Right, as we saw in Malachi. Right, if they get fed, they bless them, and if they do something bad to them, they curse them. This is the tragedy. That's not a pastor, verse 17. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. So remember, the source of the first wrath was arrogance and heart. But now we see... Verse 17... Uh, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away. So look, godless and evildoer, this is the second reason. Pastor needs to be holy. But, but right, many pastors, right, right, instead of seeing holiness, we see wildness. Or with the pastor's wife, we should see mercy and love. But if you're like, oh, wow, she's sexy. That's wrong, right? That's tragic. And so godliness is an expression of God, right? It is, it is, what is godliness? That when someone strikes you on the right cheek, you offer the left. But let's say someone strikes you on the right cheek, you counter with the right hook. That's not godliness, right? A godliness is, is that when someone asks you to walk with them 50 li, you go with them 100, right? That's what godliness is, is, is living in, in God's way, right? And as it says in 1 Timothy, for godliness is of great benefit because godliness is an expression of God. Uh, godliness encompasses a wide range of things. It, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
right? These are all ingredients of godliness. Without these things, we cannot live a godly life. So godliness doesn't necessarily mean just doing a QT. Godliness is in every aspect, is not made through QTs. Godly is made, godliness is made through your, uh, every process of your life. Who is Israel? Israel is Shema Israel, right? They are to hear the words of God, being immersed in the word of God, being immersed in worship of God. That is what it means to be Israel, right? We see in the Old Testament, right? We see throughout the law that they have the word of God written everywhere, all over their hand, over their heads, in their homes. They're surrounded by the word of God. And so Israel is godly. And so what does it mean to be godless? Is that they are giving, uh, that they are turning away, turning their back from the methods of godliness. So I don't want to pray, I don't want to worship. And so this, as, so as this arrogance and pride grows inside of them, they reject the system of God's kingdom. That I will not live that way. I refuse to live that way. That's what it means to be godless. And because they are godless, they are evildoers and every mouth speaks folly. So what does it mean to speak folliness? It means that they are speaking of the worldliness. And so that's why for all this, anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And that, uh, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. And yet, uh, his anger does not turn away because even though he's continually stretching out his wrath against Israel, they are not returning. So moving on, verse 18 to verse 21. This is the third sign of God's wrath. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. What does this mean? That God's holy fire, the fire of his righteousness, is burning away at all the thorns and the briars of Israel. And so as they live before God, right, they should have been choice vine bearing choice fruit, but rather they have become thorns and briars, and so God cannot leave them to grow in his vineyard, and so he burns it away like the chaff. And so living with Israel, living as Israel is great privilege, but if you lose the dignity that comes with being Israel, then, then God is going to pour out his wrath. And so as children of God, the dignity, the glory that is given to us, it is great privilege, yes? But when you turn away from that dignity, when you turn away from that identity, there is no greater tragedy. Look, look at all the wickedness that happens in the world. Look at all the warfares that have begun. It all has been done in the name of God. Look at how tragic that is. This is the result of that. So moving on, verse 19. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Look, it says no one spares another. And so, when you, because you cannot handle your own life, you cannot have mercy even on your brother. Verse 20, um, they slice meat on the right but are still hungry. They devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. And so when Assyria surrounded Samaria, right, they, they resorted to cannibalism because of the tragedy of, of the famine that was going on. That's, that, that's, that's the fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 21, Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. They're eating what eat another. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Why? 
because they do not stop in their wickedness. And so the only way to stop God's wrath is to stop and repent and return to God. And so repentance is the pinnacle of wisdom. Amen? And so there's no need for wickedness to grow in this way. And so moving on to verse chapter 10. We're, move, we're making good time, yes? But it's already 12. What should we do? Oh, I need to finish. Okay, the first wrath is from chapter 10, verse 1 through verse 4. So let's just finish with this one last thing. Okay, I'm just going to go over what's important. And so from verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1 through 4 is the fourth wrath. Right, we see it, yes? You see it? Yes, it's there. And then so verse 4, Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners. Uh, again, it says, For all this his anchor has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And so, remember, God's righteousness is zedek, that there is righteous judgment. And what is righteousness? It is to look for the widow, look for the orphan. And because this righteousness is not there, this wrath comes upon them. And so as Israel, Israel needs to manifest God's righteousness, God's zedek. And that is to look for the orphan and the, and the widows, but they are not. And because they are not, they have given up on their identity as Israel. And so that's why God's wrath stretches against them. And so verse 5 to 11, who is this wrath against? This wrath comes through Assyria. But the tool of God's wrath, Assyria, now Assyria itself receives judgment. So it says, woe to Assyria. Why is Assyria being judged? Because again, because of their arrogance. God has used Assyria as, as, their, as the tool, so they should be humble, but they think it's because of their excellence, because of their, their, um, their progress. So verse 6, against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. So they are being used as God's tool, but they do not recognize that. And so in verse 12, or verse 11, or Oh, verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And so through Assyria, uh, Zion and Jerusalem was judged. But now God judges who? Judges Assyria because of, their, because of the arrogance and the boastful look in his eyes. And then verse 13 describes his arrogance. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. And so look, it's all me, 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 me. Right? I have done it. My wisdom. My understanding. Right? Seeing, thinking that he, they have conquered. I removed the boundaries of people and plundered their treasures. Right? He thinks that he, by his strength, by the strength of his arms, he can take anything. Verse 14, my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I've gathered all the earth. So see, he's thinking that because of his strength, it's so easy to conquer the world. And because of this arrogance, God judges Assyria. And so this is important in our lives. That there is no reason for us to bet our lives on the tools of God. Right? We are the goal of God, right? Not the means. So do not treat God like the means. He is our goal. 
at any time we should be able to give up the tools, the methods. Money, is it a method or is it a goal? It is a method. And so at any time we should be able to give up the money. If you keep mistaken into thinking that the means is the goal, then you will be judged. And so listen carefully, brothers. Do not give your lives on the methods. Do not think that methods is the goal. Now, of course, people are the goal of God, but do we give our lives to people? No. We give our lives to God because people, though they are a goal for God, it's not the goal for men, right? For men, our goal is God. As a pastor, is that your goal or not? No, it's not a goal. You are giving lives for the pastoral ministry, not because the pastoral ministry is your goal, but because the pastoral ministry is the tool of God to bring glory, right? And so at any time, we need to be able to give up on the, on the means. We need to be able to lay down the means at any time. It should not be the definition of our lives. And yet this is the foolishness of man, is that they constantly bet their lives. They lay down their lives for the means rather than the goal. If God is the goal, if God is the end to the means. Now I could say many things, many things as examples, but, but if God is the end, then your, the, the, the method of your life will be so clear. You will know where you need to go. And so it's because you do not have your priorities in order that you're constantly missing the target. So once again, He is the goal. He is the end. At any time, we should be able to give up on the means. Amen? And so continuing... And then so starting from verse 20, this is where it's important. Okay, and so God's wrath comes to Assyria after Israel. Amen? Amen? And, right, and Assyria gets judged. Uh, uh, 180,000 soldiers of Assyria gets uh, destroyed in overnight, right? And so from verse 20, now let's talk about the restoration of the remnant. So let's close with this. Yeah, the remnant of Israel will return. So whether it's Isaiah or any prophet, this is where they are focused, is on the remnant. And so one main flow of, of the Bible is the remnant, is the return of the remnant. Even Jesus is someone who came in the flow of the remnant. Amen? And so, all of Israel, all of the church is going to glorify God, is going to be used by God. It'd be great if that was the case. But the truth is, is that is not the case. And so the remnant are not chosen, but rather the remnant are those who give up their lives for the glory of God. God wants all of them to be remnant, but it's only those who live for the glory of the king that there's all, that's why oh, there's so few that live for the glory of the king that's why it's called the remnant it'd be great if all were going but there's only a remnant look at even Israel through Jeremiah it was proclaimed that you will go uh, you need to be exiled and yet not everyone goes to, to Babylon right they try to remain in the land 
but it's only the remnant that will go. And so verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. And so look here, through this suffering, the remnant, the more suffering comes to the remnant, to those who trust in God, through that suffering, they lean more and more on God. Most religions, if your God continually beats you, you're not going to rely on that God anymore. But it's because God, our God, is a true God that as we continually receive that wrath, we do not, we do not lean on Babylon, but we lean on Him who is the, the Holy One of Israel. And so holiness gets shaped. So verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And so the remnant return. It is the remnant alone who return to God and who will enjoy the glory of God. Verse 22, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea. So though Israel was the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. And so destruction is decreed even in Israel. So there are so many churches all over this globe. It'd be great if they all prepared for the glory of God, but that is not the case. It's going to be a small in number. In Isaiah, it says that two-thirds of Israel will die, only a third. And so think about that number. And so the remnant is not very many. But no need to worry for that remnant will be victorious over the Antichrist. Amen? That God will pour out all His power and authority of heaven to the remnant. And so remnant, it's not about choice. It's not about election. It's those who live as the remnant who will be the remnant. Amen? So verse 23, For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. And so God is doing everything throughout history for the remnant. Verse 24. And so from verse 24, we see the restoration from that judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. So do not be afraid of the means. It's not about whether you have money or not. You do not need to be worried about the world. You do not have to be worried about the means. If you know the ends, you do not need to worry about the means. Amen? Okay. All I need is 10 more minutes. So all I need is 10 more minutes. Okay, we need to, we need to finish chapter 10 so that going on to verse 11. There's no need to spend too much time in judgment. We don't want to extend judgment to tomorrow, right? And so... So verse 25, for in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And so all the things that were used as the tools will be destroyed. Verse 26, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And so he's going to annihilate all the things of the, the, of the devil. And so he is guaranteeing the victory for the remnant. This is the faith that we must have. We do not need to question whether we might have the victory or not. Victory is already decreed. Amen? Yes. Believe. And so we must not doubt in victory. It's not about, oh, will I be victorious or not? No. It's 
So the process is what's important, but the ends have already been decreed. Victory, blessing, amen? And so once again, I say, glory, victory, uh, blessing, it's all decreed for you. And so bless the person next to you, that you will be blessed, you will be victorious, you will be, what's the third word? Singi, Yongguang. I didn't remember the third word. Anyways, and so verse 27. And in that day, and so as is Isaiah has been continually saying that his burden will depart from your shoulder. As it says in Romans 8, 16, that you are no longer burdened to the flesh, and yet why do you keep carrying that burden? You are no longer burdened. Pastors, lay your burdens down. This is the principle of God. This is the principle of God's reign is because you fail to believe in that principle that you keep carrying that burdens. Fathers, you are not responsible for the burden of your children. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay down that burden. Okay, you're going to break your back. Why keep taking that burden on yourself? God says you are no longer burdened to the flesh and yet you keep taking burdens that are not even there. And so, uh, and so we must be light. The burden will depart from your shoulder. And so all your burdens have been taken away. Do not burden yourselves. Amen? 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 And you're burdened, yes? Shimpong, you need to take that burden, yes? Look, you can't even answer because you have so many burdens on your shoulders. And so look. Burden doesn't just simply mean you are weighed down. But when you, burd when you are burdened, it means you do not have the strength to loosen it with God. And so because it's so heavy... You cannot loose, you cannot unleash the power of God. And so when you are burdened, the signs are clear. First thing is you lose joy. Second is you lose confidence. And you're always weighed down. You're always burdened. And, and you may not recognize it, but the people around you will know that you are heavy. That your face is so hardened. Because you're struggling, you're struggling to persist. You're struggling to persevere. And so look at the pastors who's close to you. See how hard their lines on their face are. So you could see the tone of the voice of the pastor. There is a person who works at the... At the at the, <laughs> at the hospital one of our church has. And he said that Deacon Park seems like a pastor, whereas the pastor of the church seems like a, a, a gym instructor. <laughs> and so look, look at, look, Deacon Park is weighed down by religion. That's why he seems like a pastor. And yet I seem like a gym, gym instructor. That's how little um, religion I have. And so I was so grateful that that's what he said. Oh, I, I do not have religious spirit. Right? Why does a deacon seem like a pastor? Deacon, you have many issues. Then I guess uh, his wife will seem like a pastor's wife then. I will ordain you. Come. 
And so uh, the burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. How will this yoke be taken? And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. What is a yoke for? A yoke is in order to control the, the ox. And so when that burden is laid down, that yoke has no longer has no effect over you. Because God is leading you, this, this yoke has no effect, has no effect on you. But because you take this burden, that yoke has effect. And so this yoke gets taken off, and how does it get taken? It gets broken because of the fat. What does this mean? Because the ox have gotten so fat, the, 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 the fat of the neck broke the yoke. And now this is not a good thing uh, when we think physically, but spiritually speaking, what does this mean? It's the riches of God. The riches of God is so abundant that it fills up the ox that he gets so fat that the yoke gets broken. Amen. What does this mean? God provides. Hallelujah. So we're almost finished. Let's see verses 28 to 34, second part of restoration. Uh, no matter what commentary I look at, no one interprets it the way I do. But look, he has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Mikmash, he stores his baggage. Most people interpret this as the way the Assyrians came into Judah. But throughout history, no empires have attacked Israel through this path. This, are, these are all cities that make a straight line from Galilee to Jerusalem or to Israel. Right? It goes straight down. It's basically a straight line. Right? Gibeah, Ramah, uh, Galim, uh, Nob. At Nob, is, we're close to Jerusalem. Right? In verse two, 32, Nob. So anyways, these cities... Right. I, Ayath, Mikmash. Nob uh, is at the Mount of Olives. It's where the, the prophets would gather. And so from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's, it's all cities that make a straight line. And so uh, at Mikmash, he stores his baggage. Uh, at Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. They're all running away. Verse 32, uh, the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And so all these empires are attacking, and so these cities tremble in fear. And so verse 32, this very day he will halt at Nob, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And so at Nob, they invade, and at Nob, they, 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 they rest. So who is this? It's Jesus coming to Jerusalem from Galilee. Right? And so he stops at the Mount of Olives and looks upon Jerusalem. And so this is Jesus coming down straight to Jerusalem. 
as the victorious king. His triumphal entry. Right. Um, we're speaking of restoration. Why would all of a sudden an invasion of Assyria come when, when restoration? It doesn't match with the context. So this is the procession of the triumphal king. And then from verse 33 and 34, God of judge proclaims victory. Amen. And that's the end of, of chapter 9 and 10. And so starting tomorrow, we get to prophecy of chapter 11. And so Isaiah is an amazing prophet. He prophesies uh, the triumphal procession of Jesus Christ 700 years before it even happens seeing the devil tr tremble because of the gl uh, the light of glory that comes and he sees uh, um, uh, Jesus come look at how look at how great of of, of prophet they are so it, how great would it be for this kind of prophecy the prophet to manifest in this day and age so already seeing things 700 years into the future. And so really, when we go to the kingdom of heaven, there's so many people we want to meet, right? So many people we want to meet. Now, while I was on this earth, it was through your words, through your words that has helped me. <laughs> so how amazing is it that 700 years before Jesus Christ comes, already seeing his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and so what is restoration? It is the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. This is restoration. That is what's constantly being professed to by Isaiah. And so look, 2,700 years ago, already Isaiah knew that the only answer is Jesus Christ. And yet many people are trying to find solutions outside of Jesus Christ. This should not be. He is our only comfort. He is our only victory. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus is our everything. Amen? And so for those of you who know Jesus, you will live this way. That all I have is Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Let us pray. So let's turn off the lights. Do not just go to your rooms. But at the very least, for 15 minutes. For 15 minutes, unleash, unravel this message in you through prayer. And so, I pray that, Lord, that the prophetic anointing would be activated in the churches of Zoe ministry. That they would be able to prophesy according to the measure of their faith. So turn off all the lights and begin. Lord, tonight as we pray... Let this prophetic anointing be activated. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. The times calls for your prophet. We need your prophet. And so, Lord, as it says that in Amos, that God, you do not move without first revealing your secrets to your servants, the prophets. That kind of prophet, a prophet, may we have those lips that the word will not fall to the floor. And so, Lord, as we have fellowship with you, open the doors of heaven. And as you came last night, as much prayer has been touched, may a more powerful presence come upon us. That as we fight, and you have given us this great victory, and you have continually blown the fire and the wind, the breath through the nations, 
So Lord, tonight, as we draw near to the throne of grace, may we receive powerful prophetic anointing and let power and authority be activated that we would be able to bring your wrath against the enemy. May all the hardness of our arrogance be wiped away, be softened down. May all of it be melted away. May we lay down all the burdens that the yoke would break at the fat. And so, Lord, may all this state of salvation come upon us. Bless us tonight. Anoint us tonight, Lord. Let us pray.